Welcome to The Mariner with me, Chris Stanwell-Major, and welcome to the other side of me rage quitting because I was completely and utterly sick of everything to do with recording a podcast, which happened in the last hour when I attempted to use some new software and a new setup to record and uh, discovered that uh, my sense of humor and patience for this kind of thing is a little bit shorter than I realized. So I was hoping to bring you a product which would have me sounding as dulcet and velvety as Morgan Freeman. But in the end, <laughs> like the headphones on and the messing around with the EQ and then the cat jumped up on the keyboard and all the rest of it, I just got to the point where it's like, I'm rage quitting. I'm walking away from this. I'm going to have half an hour and a cup of tea and then we'll go back and we'll do it basically the way we've always done it. And um, maybe we'll just take more like baby steps towards uh, advancing this um, as I'm going along. So the good thing is I do have a different microphone, so I'm not recording onto uh, my uh, cell phone, <laughs> but uh, I'm sure you can still hear all of the background noise here in the barn. And although every single piece of advice that I read said you must wear headphones, I'm still not wearing headphones because uh, well, not like I'm worried about the way my voice sounds because I've heard that many times before, but there's like a little echo, a little bit of latency in there. And I just end up talking like there's something wrong with me. So Yes, we'll we'll go a little bit slow with this one. So um, thank you very much to everyone that contacted me after the last uh, couple of podcasts. It's been awesome to read questions and your comments and hear uh, where you are and how you're listening to the podcast and um, what you're getting from it. Um, last time I was talking about Dunning-Kruger effect and the way that we have to be very careful to understand where we are at in our learning process and how that can then affect the way that we develop our skills and we interact with people whilst we're developing our skills. And most importantly, that we don't set off on a hide into nothing, some kind of crazy exploit based on inflated ideas of where we're at. The thing that we've all decided to get involved with, with sailing and seamanship and the skills development, it's such an insanely diverse area. And that's what came through in the comments that I received. There are so many areas of sailing that you can develop skills in. The wonderful thing about sailing is that there are, well, there's basically this, this content for my podcast until the end of time. So that's good. But uh, the main thing is that we must not get ahead of ourselves. If you're inside of 50,000 miles, then uh, you're still learning. And if you're over 50,000 miles, you'll realize that you're always learning. So what are we going to talk about this week? I wanted to get back to that story of the uh, solo around the world trip. I've only got two legs left to talk about in the uh, the sequence of what happened going around the world. So I want to get that done. And the next one is interesting. The sailing wasn't particularly interesting, but everything else was. So to listen to other parts of this story, you'll need to go back through the the, the backlist of this podcast and there's ones about me going to the southern ocean and big sail repair and then racing to cape horn and then one called punter or bust those are the ones that kind of lead up to this there's five legs going around the world but i think we did do two uh, in the southern ocean so if we pick up the story i had just got into punta del este having had the closest solo racing finish ever from a, around the world races. It was a 40 second gap between myself and Gutek, uh, Zbigniew Gutanowski, the Polish sailor who I was racing against. And we had closed down on each other from me being 
uh, like 500 miles behind racing through the Southern Ocean. I managed to catch that up and then we got it down to me being just ahead and then unfortunately losing it at the end. My own hubris playing against me as I came on deck to have pictures taken and didn't look at the navigation. There's always a lesson in all of this. The lesson being uh, look after the details and the details will look after you. Okay, so Punta del Este is quite a famous town in Uruguay and I really did enjoy being there and I enjoyed the entire ambience and the history of being there. It's hosted round the world races for the last, well, 40 years from the, from the early 80s and people there know the races, they know the races and you know, there's people that have been down to see me coming in but then they also came down to see Christophe Organ come down in the 80s when he was doing his BOC so there's lots of heritage and history and pride there. I did get the opportunity to go out into the uh, hinterlands around, is that the right word? Hinterlands? I feel like it should be the right word. I want to use the word hinterlands, so I'm going to use that. I was in the hinterlands, puffing on a pipe and stroking my beard, and I uh, I got the opportunity to go out to an estancia and uh, stay there for the night and uh, interact with a farmer, go horse riding, uh, go for a bit of a walk around, and it's absolutely glorious, and I would very much suggest anybody who gets the opportunity to go to that part of the world goes and has a look at Punta del Este. I also discovered Dolce con Leche, which I somehow had slipped <laughs> through the filters of my upbringing. And then I've had a problem with that ever since. So thanks very much, Punta del Este. But soon enough, it was time to get onto the water. Oh, actually, you know what? I've got one thing I want to ask. When I was in Punta del Este, I have a great interest in classic cars. Anybody who knows me will know I'm always saying to people that I do boats for my work, but my passion is classic cars. So I have this question. They are all sorts of classic cars in Punta del Este. They literally have like Ford Model A's sitting out on the streets with for sale signs on them. It's the most bizarre place. I understand the issue is that they uh, cannot export them out the country. So they're all just kind of like compressed in there. And you, they're, they're everywhere. People are using them for going shopping and they were like built in the 1920s. But I went to see this particular little garage that had classic cars for sale. And there was a car in there called a Loxley Locket. A Loxley Locket. Has anybody ever heard of a Loxley Locket before? Because I looked them up and I literally found nothing. It was most recognizable by the fact it had this, I believe it was like a hexagonal grill on the front of it. The only thing I remember is like a little sort of scuttle racer, just a bonnet and a uh, little boat tail maybe on it. I can't remember, but... You know, you guys are out there in the world. You guys know stuff. I'm just in here. I wonder if anybody knows what a Loxley locket is. For God's sakes, please. It's been 10 years. And I, <laughs> it was a lovely car and I can't buy it because it's in uh, Punta del Este. And, and in Uruguay, and you can't get stuff out of Uruguay. So if anybody knows what that car is, please, please tell me. But anyway, sailing stuff. It was an interesting stopover because the people from the media side of the race had really got excited about this very, very close battle that Gutek and I had had on the way into Punta del Este. And from their point of view, they were thinking, oh, fantastic. Now we've got someone who's really going to, you know, create a spectacle and create a race and, and, and do something which I hadn't been doing before. They had another person who was ready to be competitive. So they focused a lot on me um, with the, the filming and all that kind of stuff. And it was cool. It was good to be part of it. But they were like saying to me, you know, you should go and do some training. You should go out like running and stuff and get yourself physically fit. So I'm like, uh, okay. So did a bit of that. And then they just happened to be there and film me. And, you know, why are you doing this? And 
I say, you know, basically you guys told me to, and they're like, oh, well, do you think it'd be helpful, you know, to be fitter, to be able to then beat Brad on the next leg? I'm like, well, I don't think I'm really ready to beat Brad. But yeah, sure, if you, you know, go out and get fitter and try and improve yourself, then yes, indeed. I'm sure that you probably maybe would have a better chance of it. Well, of course, come the documentary, uh, <laughs> it's basically me being chopped together, uh, saying I am out training so I can beat Brad. <laughs> it was an interesting thing to have that much focus on me. I actually lived in China like back in early 2000s, 2002. And that gave me my first inkling of the fact that you would never want to be famous. Like if anybody is famous out there, I'm sorry for you. And I, I, I feel your pain. Like I was living in China and there were only 17 Western people living in a town of 4 million Chinese people. And, uh, you know, I traveled to China. I lived in Hong Kong for many years. I love being in that part of the world, but it's very odd when there's a very small number and you stand out so much because, you know, I've got red hair or had, <laughs> now I've got like no hair, but I had red hair at the time. And then there's girls that have got blonde hair and there's tall, like Norwegian guys and all this kind of stuff. And they stood out very, very much from the rest of the population. I knew there were 17 because I knew all of them. But at that point, like we became the focus of a lot of people's attention. It was all well-intentioned and it was all very kind, but it was just people watching us all the time. Like they opened a pizza hut and they literally came to our apartment block where we lived and got like 10 of us and dragged us down to pizza hut. And we sat in there being given free pizza. Well, you know, it's not bad, but uh, <laughs> looking at the window, there's like 4 million <laughs> people looking in the window watching us eating pizza. So that had already given me an idea that I wouldn't ever want to be in that kind of situation where you have that much scrutiny. And then in Punta del Este, getting these cameras in my face and how are you going to do on the next leg? And what are you going to be doing? And what's your tactic? And it's like, you know what? I, I tried really, really hard and uh, I'm pretty tired and it didn't kind of work out the way I wanted to. So what I actually want to do is just relax and, and hang out here. And I think a, a great indicator of the fact that it's it's good to go and do things that inspire people and can give people some kind of, uh, you know, lifting experience, some kind of uh, idea of what's possible that they could go and do these things as well. All of that side of it. I love it. But doing the bit where you are, yeah, like a kind of monkey with symbols and affairs and a waistcoat, not happy with that at all. So it was with some relief that I got back onto the water and we started to uh, head out of Punta del Este. And the next stop was going to be Charleston, South Carolina. So that is quite a long run. And it's, it's important to note that um, when you're looking at the world, like in a, a textbook or something like that, you're looking at this thing called a Mercator projection. It's a very, very common way of taking the sphere that we live on or quasi-spheroidal oblate spheroid that we live on thing and flattening out so you can get it into kids' textbooks, all right? But it has always been criticized by the fact that it's almost a political move because it does make countries in Europe look massive <laughs> and everything around the equator in the southern hemisphere look quite small so although it may seem like a very very long way to go from New Zealand to Cape Horn and then up to Uruguay it, on a, that kind of Mercator projection it doesn't look really that far just going to go from like halfway up South America to a little way up up North America but it is in fact another six and a half thousand miles because you go through the equator where the latitudinal elongation of the Mercator projection is at its minimum so things there are very very small but it doesn't feel that small when you're there. So <laughs> the opportunity in front of me, of course, was to do what these 
media people had been going on about, which was to suddenly like take on Brad, take on Derek, take on Gutek on their on their own ground and and sock it to them, so to speak. But there was still some big gaps in my knowledge. I was much happier with the boat, but I was much happier with the boat in very heavy conditions. I've always been happy with boats in in heavier weather. Um, I guess a lot of the early sailing I did was in the Kurio Shio, uh, in the Taiwan Straits, sailing in rough weather off Asia. So I was always very happy with the way that boats handle in those kind of conditions. It is easier to, to, to run a boat at high speed. If the boat can handle it, if you've got the sail inventory, if nothing goes wrong or you prevent things from going wrong, it is pretty much like being in a Jaguar in the outside lane on the highway, uh, just blatting along, right? The difference is when you want to push a boat and make it go faster in variable conditions, in light conditions, all that kind of stuff, that takes a lot of skill. And it also takes a very competent um, setup of the boat, understanding of the boat, and sail inventory. And whilst I had learned much, much more about my boat, certainly my sail inventory was somewhat lacking. I did not have a code zero. And my understanding of how to drive the boat in those conditions was still yet to be developed. I'd made this breakthrough in like high speed turbo setting, but I still was yet to learn more about how to get the boat to go uh, as quickly relative to the other boats in 15 to 20 knots. So everyone's chit chatting and I'm starting to maybe even believe the press about the fact that, oh, you know, you're going to be up there with Brad on the next leg. But the grim reality was as soon as I got away from the start line, <laughs> he just did a horizon job on me like he always did, like he did on everyone. And uh, it was basically for Gutek to chase him as best he can and then Derek in behind him and then me. Now, I read back through my logbook. I don't, I don't really sort of talk about this stuff that much. I think we've all had that experience. Like you go and have a holiday or you go and do some incredible thing. And when you get back, you just like download it second by second for the people that are unwise enough to meet you at the airport and then this you know the next time could be literally when you get home another group of people but over the next couple of days couple of weeks couple of months the version of the story starts to get compressed and a lot simpler until basically people say to you like uh how was it driving across australia ah it was pretty good <laughs> like that's it uh how was it sailing around the world uh, yeah, it was, yeah, it was okay. You know, so it's not like I'm going on about this stuff all the time and, and doing this podcast has been awesome to get the stories out. But when I think of this leg going from Punta del Este to Charleston, uh, <laughs> I think I'm subject to like Makata compression in my head. Like I, I only remember two things about it, which we're going to discuss. Uh, but I almost like don't remember anything else. So I've, I've actually got my logbook out from that period and started looking at it. So I keep log uh, even when I'm on the boat on my own, although that's kind of maybe what I've been telling people when I actually look back through it. It's like, yeah, I sort of kept the log. So what's interesting to me is that I signed them, <laughs> even there's only me on board. But I, my log keeping ability did uh, falter because of the emotional situation I was in. I got to say, like doing the seamanship training courses I'm doing now, looking towards the future, looking towards the syllabus is going to come, doing some consultancy work, which I did a little while ago uh, for a medical company that was going to be providing support for offshore sailors that are on their own. I've actually learned a lot more about the mental situation that you're in when you're on your own and the effects of sleep deprivation and the effects of 
um, fear on you and stress and how it affects memories and all this kind of stuff. And I start to realize that it's not strange that I have a very odd kind of recollection of this period of time. And it's not strange that during that period of time, I had a very hard time rationalizing my emotions. And I did not know that before I went away. And I learned it the very hard way at sea. And I think going into the next one, um, I'd be much better sorted uh, in, in mentally for going into it. I saw a I think it was Loic Prawn or Jean-Pierre Dick or someone, one of the famous French offshore sailors. He was saying the first time you sail solo around the world, it's like jumping out of an airplane. Um, it's only on your second or third time that you actually start to enjoy the experience. The first time you have no idea what's happening. <laughs> and I guess that is uh, my experience of it. I need to go and do it again with all the stuff I've learned. And I think then I could enjoy it a lot more and get a lot more from it and not be as affected by it afterwards because going the first time with no knowledge of what I was getting into you know I would have done much more preparation if I was crossing the Atlantic that was not necessarily very wise in hindsight but setting off from Punta del Este I was trying to be as focused as possible on what was happening next on the race on the success I'd had on applying it but what became apparent very quickly is that for all the best will in the world I was still being outclassed by these other people and I, I didn't have much to respond with it's uh it's a it's a bit of a crushing thing when you realize that you're giving something your absolute best and you are not getting the results you were promised like you know life is a lemon and I want my money back um as meatloaf said so I did get a little bit knocked back by that. And looking at my log, I'm, I'm first entries are li literally me apologizing for, um, I, I'm sorry, I haven't written the log for a long time, which it's almost a week in. But what I do write in the log is the fact that I just haven't been able to kind of get into gear. I think I'd poured so much into that experience of coming from New Zealand and fixing the mains and everything else that, you know, we got about 10 or 12 days ashore in Punta del Este, which was awesome. And we got to see the town and go into all sorts of fun things. But we were then in a situation where setting off, you've kind of got out of the rhythm. And I will say this, the uh, the branding for the Velux 5 Oceans race, which had been the BOC around alone before, their branding was the ultimate solo challenge, which at the time, even though I was in it, I remember thinking, oh, this is not really the ultimate solo challenge because the Vendee Globe is the ultimate solo challenge. But having done it and had time to think about it, it is definitely a unique and perhaps it is the ultimate solo challenge because you race as hard as you can. You do everything you possibly can do to the point where you're breaking the boat, breaking sails, um, just jury rigging things back together again to just survive and do your very best on these sprints from city to city on the, the in the, you know, the different nations that you visit. But then when you get there, you can fix stuff, right? So you you can break the boat in a way that you wouldn't go for it if you were doing something like the Vendee Globe. Although boats are going faster and faster and faster in the Vendee Globe, if there was still a race that went from port to port, they would go even faster again. Um, I don't know. It's, it is a pity that this race doesn't exist anymore. It was awesome, but, you know, who... Who am I to get involved in that? I, I, just, <laughs> I just work there. But uh, the, the thing that is the downside that makes it a much, much harder challenge is the fact that you're at sea and you're racing hard and then you stop and you go back to sleeping in a bed and talking to people and going to McDonald's and going to the supermarket and doing all that kind of stuff and then you have to get back in it again and that's very very tricky and 
you know, in total, it took me 140 days, I think it was, to go around the world. I was obviously a lot slower than the faster guys. I think Brad did it in like 130 days or something. But that's five legs. And it's a lot slower than the Vendée Globe because as you're going around, as you then have to go into a specific port, you cannot just pick which side of a big weather system you're going to be on. In the end, it's kind of like a funnel. You know, you can go round around the funnel with all sorts of options seemingly available. But as you get constrained tighter and tighter down into the neck of the thing, you, you ultimately you cannot go anywhere apart from the port that you're heading to. And of course, if the wind's not in a favorable direction, you're just going to have to go upwind or you're going to have to cross a light airs patch or beat through that storm or whatever it is. So times are always going to be different than the Vendée Globe, where, of course, there's a, a much larger scale to the weather routing you're doing. And you're never, hopefully, if you're going to be fast, you're never going to be going through those difficult conditions as you do when your finish line is on the other side. But at sea, the boats can be faster because they are sprinting. So there's like highs and lows of all of it. Mentally, I think it's very, very difficult. But then setting off and not seeing anybody for 100 to you know 120 days is hard. But then setting off for 40 days and then being like home for <laughs> two weeks is hard and then going again. And so, I don't know, whatever the combination was, as I set off on Punta del Este, my head and my heart were not in it. But there were also some physical reasons where I was having a problem. The most obvious of these was the fact that I had a very bad toothache. Now, this is something that had already been a bit of an issue for me before I set off for the clipper race a year before literally I think like three days or four days before I departed from Hull in the UK to go on the clipper race I'd been eating a doner kebab and uh, my tooth had cracked and I don't have any issues with my teeth at all they are a very useful tool that I keep inside the front face hole on my <laughs> head and <laughs> And I quite often use them for stripping wire and opening beer bottles and all sorts of things. So it's not that I had some uh, unexpected weakness, but what I hadn't done was have my wisdom teeth removed. So my wisdom teeth were coming down from the back, shoving my molars forwards, not that I knew anything about it, and then crack this, this tooth departed. So three or four days for the clipper race, I'm in having... Uh, some kind of cap or whatever the proper word is for that. Uh, my new dentist friend, Manny, will be now screaming the right word at me, but whatever it was, something that <laughs> goes on top of some broken old horrible nasty tooth in your head. And uh, I set off around the world with that. Well, it just kind of become a part of me, hadn't given it a second thought, set off on the Velux thing. And then as I was coming out of Punta Leste, maybe three or four days out, whatever that thing was, Manny, that thing on the top of my tooth, it came off. If you'd have put it there, it wouldn't have come off, but it came off. So, um, yeah, that was not good. It was an exposed nerve then, uh, and it was really giving me a lot of uh, pain. I had a certain amount of pain-killing medication on board, but as you can imagine, we have a decent amount of stuff because you may experience pain at sea, and you may have to deal with that pain long-term. So we have ibuprofen, and we have acetaminophen, and we have... Tramadol, and then we can ramp it up, and we have things like uh, morphine if you have to. Like we have the whole range, but really things like ibuprofen and and uh, acetaminophen are the things which you're expecting to 
deal with long-term pain for. I don't have huge amounts of anything else. Now, you won't want to be dosing yourself with, uh, with morphine, like clearly, and you don't really want to be dosing yourself up with tramadol either. I can tell you when, you know, you're so close to the edge of danger all the time. But ibuprofen and paracetamol, uh, you know, acetaminophen was not really covering it. So I was kind of mixing things up a bit within the bounds of what was being uh, given me as medical advice. But it was at a point where this was hurting so much that uh, I didn't, I was at a point where I couldn't like think properly. Uh, the nerve was completely exposed. So the thing I found at the bottom of my medical kit, which sorted things out, and I would say any sailor doing a long distance trip, you must have, well, as I know now, uh, oil of cloves would have really, really helped. You can take those teething gels that kids have, Bongella, and that would have helped. Um, the thing that I got to was emergency dental repair kit that was in the bottom. And it's basically like an epoxy and you uh, mix uh, it up with these two parts. And I'm sure it's all very sterile and special and whatever it is, but I mixed this stuff up and shoved it in my mouth and then got some relief from it. So I was about a week into this leg and the leg, I guess, was about, I don't know, 21, 22 days, something like that. And uh, I then had to get into a situation where I was making a new cap or whatever that thing's called uh, every two, two or three days. So about two days and I could bear the pain for a certain amount of time. Then I had to make another one. I got through the dental stuff like relatively quickly. And then I just started, I was, I was smelling the ingredients and I was looking at the ingredients. I'm like, this is epoxy. So I just made up epoxy. <laughs> You're not going to like this bit. I just used JV Weld um, and just made a little toothy thing like that. So the, the, I felt it was relatively safe because if you make up epoxy and it becomes basically plastic, right? So what I do is make it up in a, in a ball so it mostly cooked off and mostly finished up. And then I'd press it. I'd dry the area around my mouth as much as I could and then just press it down onto the tooth and, uh, and then just keep my everything in my mouth away from it for the next 10 minutes as much as I could until it had gone completely off. And then, it, you know, it was bonding in such a poor way to the tooth that it was basically... Um, cooking down onto like a little layer of saliva or whatever was there. So they would last about two days, three days, and then I had to make up more of them. But yeah, if you are going to take the emergency repair kit, take enough for the fact that if you break your tooth on the first three or four days or whatever it is, and you're too damn stubborn to go in and go and see a dentist and come off the racing line, then uh, you're going to have to be making up for those little things for your teeth for the next two and a half weeks. So that was all quite painful. And then we were... Well, we're getting towards the equator and we were getting uh, into the region where it gets hot. I see in my log that I obviously got too close to the coast and uh, got waylaid and, and becalmed. It says here that I got becalmed for 24 hours. And I, I guess if I think about it, that is the kind of overall mental picture that I have of that leg. I remember it being frustrating. I remember it being uh, very, very painful, obviously, with what was going on in my mouth. I remember that I felt that I was letting myself down, that I wasn't getting the best from my boat. I think the pain in my mouth and the emotional situation I was in, I don't think I was doing very good weather routing. I think to be absolutely honest, now I consider it, yeah, things were kind of starting to snowball for me a little bit. I wasn't in the race in my head. I was distracted by the pain in my mouth. I was, I think I was getting aware of the fact that, you know, we're getting towards the end of the race as well. We're racing north back across the equator. If I'd have diverted a couple of hundred miles to the east, actually, 
around the point that I crossed the equator, I'd have been crossing my outbound track. I have actually circumnavigated. So everything else now is a bit of a milk round to go to the other ports on the race. So mentally, the scene is shifting. And I was not necessarily focusing that that much on the on the meteorology and the weather routing I was doing. I have to say that for me, the weather routing has always been uh, the biggest challenge with sailing. It's not something that I come to naturally. I don't have a huge background in it. And if I do actually sit down and try and like, okay, I'm going to learn about meteorology again, get out the Northview book on weather for sailors or whatever it is, I can see it lurking in the corner just over on the other side of the barn here now. <laughs> it knows I'm never going to pick it up ever again. I can normally get like two or three pages in, I get to that bit of the like occluded fronts. I'm like, yeah, no, this is not happening. So not awesome when your job is to know what's going on in the weather. I often say to people, they start asking me questions. And clearly, obviously, I do this for a job. Like I I do know quite a lot about it compared to a lay person. But compared to what you can know, compared to what there is to know, compared to how useful this tool can be, it's definitely an area that I'm lacking in. So people ask me questions at sea. And I say, look, the basic rule of meteorology is when there's clouds around, something's happening. So <laughs> that's, you know, once I started going off the boil with this physically and a bit emotionally, I'm sure that meteorology was not good. And I, I got myself becalmed. I got too close to the coast. And that again, that very kind of despondent setting where you see people starting to drive away from you like, ah, like what do I have to do here? You know, where's the break? So I got going again and I got going north and now we're coming up. So we're, we're getting past Rio de Janeiro. We're on the bulge of, of Brazil there. And that's where the second big issue of this leg started to hit me. And that is the fact that the uh, water maker stopped working. So the way it goes on these boats, we're trying to make them as light as we possibly can, particularly when you're going across somewhere like the, uh, the equator, you're going through the doldrums and there's not very much wind. So... I, along with all the rest of the racers, would only have about 50 liters of, of water on board at any one time, which is, I have no idea how much that is in gallons. Let me just think. It's uh, five gallons, 10 gallons. It's like, yeah, tw uh, yeah, like 15 gallons of water. Yeah, that sounds about right. So you've got enough to keep going for a while. But if you start to have an issue and you are in an area where you're drinking five liters a day you're drinking you know a gallon and a quarter uh, every every day you start to run out of, of water pretty quickly so my water maker had started slowing down and slowing down over a number of days which meant that i wasn't producing as much water as i needed and then um, it started to like completely stop and i was using up the water but it did get down to this point where like okay this is getting very very serious so i wasn't ignoring the issue i was I stripped the Clark pump, which is this Spectra water maker. It's got this big black kind of looks like a bazooka or something. It sits in the back of the boat, has this big um, reverse os osmosis membrane filter thing in it. And then it's got this little pressure pump inside with these little uh, pistons that go backwards and forwards, all 12 volt. And it sucks in water from the outside. It then highly pressurizes it and pushes it through this um, polymer membrane. Now, I've done a lot of study looking at these membranes, and I have actually discovered that it is actually based on magic. Uh, there are 500 magicians shoved into that little black tube, and they do the abracadabra thing and turn seawater into fresh water. At least when it got down to A Lads A, and I was talking to the technical director from Spectra on the phone, on the sat phone, 
uh, with this thing stripped in a million pieces, <laughs> it got down to the point of what is wrong with this thing? Basically said, it must be something to do with the membrane. I'm like, well, can I take it apart? He's like, no, you can't get in there. Okay, well, is there anything I can do to fix it from the outside? No, it's like, it just basically was magic. There's nothing you can do. So I had done everything I possibly could, but the water levels are getting lower and lower and lower. And his, his point was, you're just going to have to stop racing. If you don't have any water and there's no showers or anything, which there was no rain at all, you're going to have to pull off. And Recife was about 300 miles to my west, which even in light airs is only a couple of days run on the boat. So I knew it was there, but I was just too bloody stubborn to to give up. it. So his, his imp was fantastic and it really, really helped. But I can remember during that period where I was talking to him and I'd go and work on it some more Then I'd email him, send him a picture and backs and forwards. It was during that point that I took my last uh, drink of fresh water. And I can always remember tipping up the can and tipping it high, high, high above my head. And when it was done, there was no more fresh water on the boat. And I was thinking, okay, can I make a Liebig condenser using, you know, something heated from the engine? Can I use, uh, make a solar still and get something black? And, and I, you know, had loads and loads of ideas of how to get water. And I repeat, there was no squalls. I know about catching it in the main, some that kind of stuff. There was no water anywhere. All the squalls were dry. So man alive and like not been in this situation again and it, again it affects you mentally you're you're trying to process i'm looking at stuff and i'm very good at fixing things but i've got this all in parts and I'm like i cannot make head and a tail of this i cannot work out how to make this do what i want it to do so what i ended up doing was um getting seawater and putting about an inch of seawater like underneath the cockpit inside the boat in the cabin in the dark and I remember talking to a doctor about this a couple of years ago and she was telling me, oh, that was completely stupid because seawater is so much more salty than your body that it was probably like drying me out. Well, I, I don't know. Maybe that sounds like good science to me. But I think what I did do is it kept my body temperature down because bear in mind that on deck, it's like 35 Celsius. It's like up into the hundreds Fahrenheit. And inside the boat with only one little tiny fan, it is like cooking hot. So I've got no water. I've still got to try and fix the, uh, the, the, the water maker. And I've got to keep racing this boat. So all I was doing was I had this inch or two of water inside the boat in the shade. And I would go and lie in it. And then when I felt like kind of energized again, I'd go. So I did about I did about no, probably not much more than a day or a day and a half with no water. And I was getting to the point like, okay, I, I am going to have to go into Recife here and I am going to have to stop racing. And then I got a bit of a breakthrough with the water maker. And I realized that if I completely cut out the side of the electronics and the pumping that brought the water into the boat, then if I just asked it to pump out of a bucket through the membrane and back in the bucket, it would produce a potable water it wasn't fresh water but it was like it was salty water but it wasn't that bad and I realized I had quite a lot of sugar on board if I put a teaspoon of sugar in with it then I can make this uh it just tasted like if you've ever been in Asia there's a drink there called Pakari sweat and it was kind of like that it's like salty sweet it kind of feels like isotonic goodness but it, <laughs> it was the best I had so I could get that going and I could produce about a liter of water. If I monitored what was going on, um, I could get a liter of, of, of very, pretty good water every couple of hours. So, um, so I went with that. And for the next two weeks, the rest of the race, 
that is what I drank. I drank this highly saline, sweetened water, and it was hard. It was very hard, I've got to say. I, I didn't have to lie in the water anymore. As I went north of the equator, um, it wasn't so bad. I, I was getting enough from this weird concoction that I'd uh, come up with. But it was hard and it was frustrating. And again, it's it's amazing what you can push yourself through, what you can evolve um, to, to be able to handle. But you should never underestimate the effect it has on you and the way it affects other things around you. We all know that stress is a, a terrible, terrible thing. It's a terrible thing internally to you, but it's a terrible thing the way it affects people around you. My relationships with people I was talking to on the phone and that went downhill i see in the log here that i'm like doing almost no log entries and when i am doing them it's more me talking to myself than anything else and whenever i hear the story like of uh, donald crowhurst and uh, his exploits out on the ocean i always remember the situations i've been through and i remember that for anybody at any time there's always the avenue available of like losing the plot and once down that path it's extremely hard to rein it back in so i wasn't losing the plot but it's where you know, this little duck lines up with that little duck, lines up with this little duck, and you think like, jeepers, if if this doesn't work out right here, I could be in a real, real problem, you know? So I found that very, very tricky time. And of course, overlaying this, I've still got this bloody tooth. <laughs> so I've got this awful situation where I've got no proper fresh water to drink, and I've also got a killer toothache going on in my head, which I'm covering with uh, JB Weld. <laughs> emergency dental procedures. Um, you'll be glad to hear that I did finally get the, the tooth thing sorted out. It wasn't actually during this leg. It plagued me right to the end, and I'm not in any way uh, you know, spoiling anything to tell you. It, it didn't get fixed. I went to see a very kind doctor in Charleston who was reading about these exploits in the few blogs that I did write and um, said, oh, come and see us, and we'll sort you out. So I went to see him, and he was like, yeah, you're going to need... Is it called a root canal? Is that what it is? You're going to need this thing to get this thing done. And it's going to be like thousands of US. I'm like, dude, I haven't got any money. Like if I break even going around the world, I'd be amazed. Like, you know, there's no money doing it. You're not getting paid for doing that kind of thing. So I just kept going. So I, I he gave me like a, a full cap or a full proper dental thing on top, which I could afford. But um, that got me back to the UK. But yeah, I finally did sort it out. You'd be happy to know. Uh, one night walking across the Isle of Wight, uh, back to the train station, having seen a friend, um, it was giving me so much pain that I reached into my bag, got my Gerber and just... I've been playing around with it for ages with my tongue, pushing it back and forwards, pushing it back and forwards. And I got hold of it with a Gerber. And no, I didn't pull the tooth out. I'm not that um, cannibalistic. But I, uh, I just wrenched on it. And there was a sudden like ping. And then it didn't hurt anymore. <laughs> so I'm guessing I broke the nerve. So there you go. You know, that's almost like me being set. That's like sensible dentistry as opposed to the JB Weld fillings I was using before. But yeah, back on the boat. Uh, tough times. The... Uh, the the thing with the tooth, the thing with the water. And then I read here in the log, I'd still had leaks forwards in the boat and I'm beating up wind at some point in the log here. I'll try and find the uh, page. And um, it's, uh, it's clear that there's a lot of water coming into the, the boat. So I have got myself, I remember this, I was up forwards in the boat 
the boat's angled, all the water is sitting at the bottom. It's about a foot, foot and a half deep, and I had located what the leak was, um, but the pipe had come off the bilge pump. So I was getting the pipe back on the bilge pump, and I was having to get, like, reach down, down, down the side of the ballast tank to get this pump back on, and my face was very close to the deck as I was reaching around this corner to try and get the bilge pump on, and the boat went over a lump, and my face where the tooth was sore made contact with it and I almost blacked out I can remember that much I almost blacked out it was so painful and that's where you, you're just getting beaten up and it's no fun at all and uh, you know I was then at that point in uh, fourth position uh, behind the other three and it was just a miserable place to be but there were some good things uh, coming and the thing that was coming although it meant disaster for somebody else was the fact that Gutek broke his force day and had to peel off and go into Brazil. And then uh, the other thing that happened, I don't know if it was at the same time, but he had broken his force day. And during that instant, I think it was, he slipped in the cockpit and cracked a couple of ribs. So for him, I would say he was not injured long term and he stalwart has always dealt with it. Um, for him, a very serious situation. But for me, who was at the back and feeling a bit like, you know, some, somebody eating all my candy, uh, suddenly I wasn't at the back and I had this opportunity to start making some miles. So we came north of the uh, doldrums. Ah, now the doldrums. Now I hear that word being used a lot. So the doldrums doesn't mean there's no wind, although there's often not very much wind. The the area like, I think is it 10 degrees north and 10 degrees south is known as the doldrums or the intertropical convergence zone. You've got these strong uh, winds which blow uh, just north and just south of the equator. And in between those two, you've got this mixed up area where basically it's so warm on the equator that the air is going straight up and uh, it's just a mess of wind. Now, the winds from the south can come up into that area and the winds from the north can come down into that area. And if you're lucky, those two bands of weather patterns will come quite close together and transiting through the doldrums can be very, very easy. And I do see in my log that that's what happened on this occasion. It says that literally the wind went from uh, southeast to northeast in an hour, which is just the most perfect way of getting through the doldrums. But on the way down the Atlantic, I got stuck in the doldrums like three or four days. So the key, if you're going to be going through the doldrums, is just go directly south or directly north. Don't go on any other course at all. Even if you have the idea that it's going to be faster, you just go straight north or straight south and get out of there. But the doldrums, for people that have been there, you know it's a lot of very strong squalls and then nothing at all. And then very strong squalls and nothing at all. And it's very, very trying on the on the mind because you have to have up all the biggest sails you've got, the big A1 uh, VMG downwind kite and full main. And then suddenly the wind comes up. Remember, it's nighttime. You can't see it coming. And it hits you, hits you hard, and you've got to get all of that down as fast as you can, or you've got to be looking out, looking out, looking out, trying to get any kind of little indicator you can from the environment around you that something's coming. You can look on the radar, and as we talked about before, the radar will pick up rain, but all of these schools I went through, they are all dry. So you're literally looking and trying to see if there's patches of black cloud against the uh, backdrop of stars blotting out stars blotting out the moon and uh, any kind of change in temperature in the breeze that you're feeling any little rises and you know a couple of little rises over five minutes may indicate something's coming so you get the kite snuffed get the jib out put a reef in the main 
and then nothing happens. And then you have to put the reef back out and then you have to uh, put away the jib and then you have to put the kite back into trim and then you get hit with something and then you got to get it all back down again and then that passes after 10 minutes and you so it's absolutely exhausting really really hard physically really really hard mentally so the doldrums is uh, a mixed kind of bag of weather that is characterized by um these squalls and then flat patches which are so hard on the sailor but Cutting through that and getting north, I was back into steady winds into nice northeast trades and I could start to cut. We're now cutting like across the front of the Caribbean Sea, heading from that big bulge of South America up towards um, a, an area that's just north of Florida. So I did pretty good job there. I, I got the speed up, but I could not catch uh, Derek up. I shut him down from about 180 miles down to 80 miles, but I just couldn't get into the next weather system with him. And as we got very, very close to Charleston, within 100 uh, miles of Charleston, I fell into a, a, an area of almost no wind. Derek kept the breeze and he got into Charleston a good 12 hours ahead of me. So it was still, you know, very difficult on board. We still got the thing going on with the tooth, still got the thing going on with no water, but uh, there was a little bit of relief coming. And it came in a very, very strange way. As we approached the coast, I got within... I got within like uh, 10 or 12 miles. It was pretty flat, the coastline. I couldn't see it. I remember that much. But I was talking to my friend, Alan Nabow, the assistant race director, and he was saying, oh, you know, we're all down here and we're going to be seeing you uh, come in. Um, everyone's going to come meet you on the uh, the dock. And then as I was talking to him, he's like, Jesus, like these rain clouds coming. Look, i got to go. So he goes. I don't think anything of it. You know, he's just running for cover. He comes back on the horn about an hour later. And he said, Chris, if you trust me, I want you to get every piece of canvas out of the sky that you've got, and I want you to go to full storm cells. He said, a squall just came in here like I've never seen before, like white squall down the high street in, in Charleston. He said, wherever you are, buddy, this is coming your way. You're not that far away. You need to get your sails down now. I was like, so just hang on a second. So I'm out here. It's like sunshine, lovely, lovely day. Uh, there's other little boats around me. It's all, you know, like completely fine. And I've got... This person telling me you need to get all of the sails out of the sky. So, so you know what I did? I got all the sails down because it was Alan Nabauer saying it to me. And he is someone who I had learned to trust very, very much, very much. And so in bright sunshine, <laughs> wearing shorts and my knife and, uh, you know, like sun cream and sunglasses. I OK, so it wasn't that far to go and it wasn't going to affect anything else that was going on. And I trust him implicitly. So I put all the main down. I thought, sod it. I'll just put the main right down. So drop that down. Um, I had the storm cell always already hanged up because I did use it as a little staysail inside of some of my sail configurations. So, okay, Alan, no problem at all. Just going <laughs> to like in 15 knots of breeze, just going to put the storm jib up. And then just as he said, looking towards the coast, looking out to the west towards Charleston. It didn't really go like black and ominous and everything else. It went like white. Now, that's to say that I went through white school, but it was just so much going on inside it that it wasn't particularly like black ominous clouds. It was just a wall of wind and water. And when it hit, my, my first thing was like, oh my God. And I remember looking aft down the boat. And as I looked aft, I can remember seeing like a little 30 or 35 foot boat and just watching the jib, like literally uh, going out completely sideways, the boat absolutely on its side. And then as this uh, just white 
whatever it was, white cloth got dropped over everything. Uh, I remember seeing his jib just starting to rip off the forestay and then I didn't see him again. And this thing hit with like 50, 60 knots out of no, nothing. You couldn't see anything apart from this was white wall coming towards us. So thank God for Alan. And there's lightning and there's everything going on. Lightning on one of those boats is, is very, very nerve wracking because obviously carbon is a conductor and the boat's Everything's made of carbon, <laughs> the mast, the deck, everything else. So what I tend to do in those situations, uh, you know, a little tangent, we have to have one or two at least in every podcast. Um, when you're in a lightning system, the things that I've learned about lightning over time, I'd love to see this as a discussion, is the fact that any kind of rotary system, uh, like an engine or a generator, is going to prevent produce a certain amount of um, static charge so if you are running an engine you stop the engine because you don't want your boat to become in any way uh, a, a great option for the lightning the lightning is trying to find patches of charged ocean that it can strike which are easier for it to strike than just anywhere else the fact that yes there's a hundred foot mast sticking up it's a very big deal but only really if it kind of gets a charge beneath it that makes it a good option for the uh the storm even though the mast is standing up and it's made of carbon ultimately the ground is the ocean and the ocean is still easier for the lightning to hit anywhere apart from having to go through your mast if the boat however has got some kind of charge built up to it in it that is going to be uh, a good option for the lightning then it's coming through you and it's going to come straight down the mast. So you can turn off all the electronics and open relays and things. But, you know, let's let's <laughs> let's be honest here. It's just jumped from like clouds, hundreds and hundreds of feet in the sky to your boat. Do you think that flicking a switch to disconnect a circuit is going to it's not going to be able to jump across the switch like it's it's jumping from the sky, man, down to the ocean. So. If it's going to fry stuff, it's going to fry stuff. You can do some very clever things with having um, certain pieces of key equipment inside of a, a makeshift Faraday cage. You can have, um, I've seen people with pelly cases that are wrapped in copper wires and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, but my experience, I've been hit by lightning a few times. Um, it's going to take whatever it's going to take. Try and do your best. Make sure at least there's a VHF and a GPS uh, available. That's where paper charts are a really good option. I'm not talking about, we'll have that conversation in the future about should we all be getting ready at any moment to do Astro Navarro in the middle of the ocean? Because I have a few thoughts on that. But if you've got paper charts and you've got a good GPS or a phone or something which survived the hit, um, you can clearly use those to make excellent way uh, to continue on your journey. But uh, the thing really, don't worry about too much about that. The, the thing that for me is most important is the fact that if you're standing on deck and you get electrocuted through your feet, there's a lot of instances of people's uh, quads and, and legs as a whole. Um, involuntary spasms start to rack you and you can jump or fall or stumble or whatever over the side of the boat. So what I do when I'm in that situation is I uh, go inside the boat and I get on something which is insulated. If you have good old-fashioned foam life jackets. You can sit on those. We used to do a lot of that when I worked for Outward Bound and we had PFD-type life jackets. And then you just have to make sure your feet are off the floor, your hands are off the floor, and that provides some level of protection. If you can get onto sail bags, if you can get onto foam bunks, that kind of thing, it's just to prevent, you know, 
it's trying to do something proactive against basically a force of nature. So you do what you can do, but clearly if you're on deck and it hits the mast and the mast explodes, you don't want to be on deck because of flying shrapnel. Being inside the boat, and if the boat's particularly wet, then it may well be the charge goes round the outside of the boat, round the rigging, down to the keel. It's acting as a bit of a Faraday cage. In fact, with carbon boats, you know, the electricity will flow around the hull, but then you don't want to be in contact with it. But uh Lightning all around, huge bangs, this crazy wind, all the rest of it. And uh, what happened next, which was the benefit of it all, was a massive dump of rain, like just like a swimming pool emptying onto the boat. And it rained and rained and rained for like 25, 30 minutes. And when I went back up on deck, the mainsail, which was completely down and inside its boom bag, was full like a bath of fresh water. And... I had not drunk fresh water for about two weeks. So I just climbed in that sucker. I climbed in it and put my face down in it and I just drank from underwater as much, as much, as much as I possibly, possibly could and just reveled in how amazing water tastes. It is a very funny thing to have been very, very thirsty. I read a book a couple of years later and it described the five stages of uh, dehydration. The first one is cotton mouth and then swollen tongue and then uh, shriveled tongue and then blood sweats and then living death. Okay, that's that's the five stages. They were uh, kind of laid down by this guy who was involved in a, a extreme dehydration incident in... Um, Death Valley in the US where he finally managed to make his way back into a campsite and uh, he was you know beyond the pale like should have been dead like sunken eyes skin like an alligator they thought he was some kind of animal when he kind of came, came crawling into the camp but he survived the people that looked after him um, got water into the inside of his elbows into the inside of his groin and started to uh, rehydrate him that way with fresh water and then a little bit by the mouth and he survived it got through wrote a book about it and um, yeah, so I don't think I was on that scale, but certainly cotton mouth and maybe a little bit of swollen tongue, maybe, but uh, it's not a great thing. Mentally, it's a very difficult place to go to. And I always have the utmost respect now for any charities which are helping to provide clean water. I, I love where I live here in Nova Scotia. We have a well on our land, which is very, very common here. Uh, in fact, I don't Oh, there is. Yeah. If you're in town in the, in one of the towns, you can get town water, but everybody has wells. And I still find it incredible. You know, it goes through a, a couple of um, just basic filters and a, a carbon filter and through a ultraviolet. But the water comes off our land and to taste it even now, years and years later, if I'm a bit thirsty and, you know, I need to go and rehydrate, go and get I just chug that water because I remember what it was to be very thirsty and there was nothing and uh, I remember also that feeling of just climbing into that mainsail and just getting into like a foot and a half deep it, it felt like I was climbing into a you know a, a lake or something but and just drinking and drinking and drinking and knowing you know I don't even have to like manage this and collect the water or anything else I am going to be into Charleston very very soon and uh, it would be all the water in the world but I then turned towards the coast and uh, managed to make uh, landfall in the evening. I did see helicopters going overhead and a boat was lost uh, that day when that squall hit. I hope to God it wasn't the one that was near me. When the squall had finished, 
you know, I've been blown a long way because bear in mind, I've got a wing mast on this uh, open 60. I got a little storm jib set, the autopilot's still on. So when it hit, we just set off at like 15 knots. And if it blew for half a mile, uh, sorry, half an hour, I was, you know, seven miles away from where I was before. But I hope to goodness it wasn't the boat that I'd seen. I, I never know what happened to that story. But as I'm coming in, there's all these little press boats and spectator boats and then these unfortunately blue flashing lights of the emergency services and helicopters overhead as they're looking for people lost in a boat but um got to the shore and as always a fantastic welcoming committee and uh, and brad there his hometown uh, welcoming me in so it was a good leg i got third in the end i got third because gutek had to go off the race he was okay he was in uh, in um, Brazil for a, a couple of days, I think a week. He cracked a couple of ribs. He got his four stay fixed. Then he hurried himself along and came and caught up with us and, and met us in Charleston for the, for the next leg of the race. But uh, it was, it was, I guess in a way, it's a, another like Dunning Kruger moment. That's what we talked about last week. Uh, I think any learning process. I was thinking about this after I did the podcast. You know, it's not really that you you just have this one big event and then you're you're completely fine after that. Yeah, there's many. It's like this contoured landscape of like, oh, I'm getting good. No, I'm not. Oh, I'm getting better now. No, I'm not. And that was another thing where I'd had this thing of getting crushed in the Southern Ocean, but then fighting back and going onto the race course, being very confident, but then realizing, uh, you know, if I have improved, um, it's not like it's night and day. There's still a lot to learn. So. As with any of this stuff, it's uh, you you develop uh, slowly and and over time. And now, when I look back, that stuff was I don't know how long ago was that? Like 150, 180 thousand miles ago for me. So I've learned a lot since then. I, I haven't been doing anything at that performance level for a long time. So I'm very excited to get into this next event that I'm going to, the West Around the World thing, and start pushing a boat at that level again. But a lot of miles have passed beneath my keel. And I think there's a, another person will be going onto the water this time with all of these experiences uh, racked up. And, and I guess it will be a different experience. So, yeah, we've only got one leg left to do with this. And I, uh, you know, it's nice to spread it out. The next one's fun because it's the last leg going into uh, La Rochelle crossing back across the Atlantic. And a lot of interesting things did happen on that last leg. This one up from Punta was a bit of a, bit of a limp squid, I guess. Uh, the, the, the water maker and the tooth, I think, just ruined it so much that I, I just basically didn't commit any of it to memory. So <laughs> that's, that's the best I've got of that. But um, the fun thing that's been for me is that I, I've been doing this podcast and I have been setting up. Now, if you're interested, uh, I've just released a, a YouTube video, which is just me basically like I used to do it, just holding up the camera, talking to the camera and showing the barn here, which I've created in the last couple of weeks to do the podcast and the filming I'm doing. And one of the desks off to one side, I don't think I really talk about it too much in the video, but I've put a desk there and I've started putting everything to do with the Open 60 and going around the world. And it's been a very interesting process for me. Um, as I've told you before, I just basically got all of the stuff from our old office, got it out of storage and made a barn. And my wife came up and, uh, and met me the other day and she was having a look at it all and sort of, you know, lots of enthusiastic uh, encouragement for me. I, I basically created a man cave. So what could she say? It's not like uh, she was involved in the design process, which is, uh, I don't know what this design style would be called. It'd be called, yeah, it'd be called man cave. It's the, it's the decorator's style of man cave. So she sort of had a look around. Yeah, fine. This looks good. I like it. Yeah, it's cool. You know, and that was, that was nice to, uh, to get that comment. But she did say, what are all these desks for? How many people are there going to be up here? 
It's like, ah, well, you see, this is my secret administration method, which I come up with, which is called a controlled schizophrenia. So when I'm at this desk, I'm going to do the podcast and uh, write blogs, okay? And the things that are on this desk make me think about those things. And then when I go to that desk over there, it's where I do admin stuff, um, which I don't like going to that desk. And then this one over here, this is where I'm just doing the stuff for the Open 60. So, of course... Uh, she just looks at me like, okay. <laughs> now she knows, of course, that my um, administrative style is not exactly uh, that sharp. So to give you an idea, I did have an office job for once, for about three months. I worked for Asiot Services in Hong Kong. Hello to Karen, who's uh, probably still out there um, doing the good job there, but I was not suited to, uh, to doing that kind of work. I had uh, four drawers, I remember, on my desk, and they were marked filed, unfiled, stuff and things. And to me, that seems like a pretty good system. You see, filed means like I've looked at it, checked it, and I've put it in this drawer because like I know what it is. Where unfiled means, well, I'm going to have to go through them because they do need to be filed in the other drawer, but I haven't done it yet. And then other stuff, there's like paper stuff, that's well, that's, it's not doesn't need to be filed, so it doesn't need to go in the filed drawer, and it would have to go in the unfiled drawer before that. So it doesn't need to go in the top two drawers. It's just stuff, right? And then things, which is like not on paper things. <laughs> so if you have the same admin style as me, then you'll know exactly where I'm coming from. And um, if you're a human, then you're just rolling your eyes. So uh, yeah, this style of working in here does, it, I think it makes, it makes sense to my brain. In the boat, like, you know, I go to the workshop on Challenger and that's where all the stuff is that is for fixing things. And then when I go to the lazarette, that's where all the stuff is for, <laughs> oh no, hang on, I've just done the same thing and I've done filed, unfiled stuff and things. But the stuff is all in lazarette, but the things are in the workshop, you see. And then the nav station is like filed and unfiled, give or take. Maybe my bag is like unfiled. But anyway, what it means is that everything that is for a particular schema a particular sphere of things is all in one area and that's how it has to be for my brain so um, when I go over to that desk now which has got all of the stuff for the open 60 when I sit down there everything there is all about that and I can completely focus on it and I really really like that and what I love is that I'm actually starting to try and really understand that boat you know it was great going and picking that open 60 up and you've all seen that stuff on the youtube uh channel the mariner things from episode one to like 23 or whatever it is i go and pick the boat up in france and i get it all back together and then i uh, sail it across the atlantic and that was cool but that was a year and a half ago and the boat was meant to be going on the water this spring and it hasn't happened because of covid19 so it's all kind of like just like stopped basically the just the project just ground to a halt as have all our lives at the moment but because I put everything around that desk I've clustered into one area it brings it back alive for me and I've started like studying all of the polar diagrams and studying the sail crossover charts and studying the boat's past performances and then of course starting to study everything about this event that I'm going to go and do this round the world uh, event and trying to get a feel for how best to approach that. So I wrote today to um, Eric Holden, who is a brilliant Canadian meteorologist. He won the Clipper race a few episodes, a few editions back and um, uh, brilliant navigator. Uh, it would be fantastic to have someone like him on board. But see, when you go and do a record, you can have weather routing done from off the boat. And this thing we're talking about now with coming up from Punta and the stuff, the problems I was in, 
if somebody else is off the boat doing all the thinking and doing all the routing for you, then you can just focus on what's in front of you and not get things snowballing where this problem then becomes a problem there and then that's a you know emotional issue and then da da da. If you've got someone like Eric on board who can give you that information, that's gonna be totally awesome. I also got in company, uh, sorry, got in contact with another company called uh, KNP, I think they're called, and they. Uh, produce a number of different programs which allow you to construct really really efficient polar diagrams and um, sail crossover charts and the latest software for doing that and a fantastic way of getting down to brass tacks so like how fast does this boat go and am I on top of it because again I'm always I'm always the guy that's talking about the emotional situation of being at sea but it is it's very very important it completely colors everything that's going on and if you're uncertain about how fast the boat can go and you're racing and you need to know that you're at maximum speed it's a massive source of frustration is it going fast enough or is it not it's bad enough to know okay I gotta go and change the sail again because we're outside of what we should be doing but it's even worse if you don't know if you've got the right sail or not and if it's going to benefit you or not so getting those details sorted out now and having that place that desk to do it it's a really really uh, exciting thing for me so the space that I've created up here in the barn is really starting to uh, starting to work for me and that's a good thing because we are looking at a departure on this event from here from Nova Scotia at the beginning of October and we are already now into May so I've got 15 16 days in May and then I've got what June July August September that's four and a half months and I'm going to be setting off from here uh, out through that little slice of the Atlantic I can see from my uh, dining room window and then over to the UK and the start line for the event is just off Cornwall, just south of the Lizard there. There's a line that the World Speed Sailing Record Council draws between the Lizard Lighthouse in Cornwall and the corner of Ushant um, on the French coast and that's the start line. When I cross that then I'm off around the world again. So I'm excited about it. I'm really this time making sure I get my head straight and, and going through this uh, last trip around the world with you guys on the podcast lets me remember the details, the good things, the bad things. I did find, I have a, a notebook, which um, I uh, <laughs> put loads of notes in of, of the other boat. Now remember that the boat I went around the world in last time is the sister ship of the one I'm going on this time. So I was, <laughs> I was a bit nervous to find this note. It says, beating is unfair on this boat and shattering on me. Uh-oh, <laughs> that's not good, is it? Well, I guess I know that's what's happening. The it's very, very clear to anybody that knows anything about these boats that an Open 60 is not necessarily the best boat to be going uh, upwind. And going west around the world is all about going upwind. The good thing is I've just now started to make contact with Dominic Wav, who is the guy who had the boat built in 2000. I didn't realize until recently he actually has done eight laps of the planet. <laughs> he's done like uh is it like three Vendee Globes Barcelona World Race and four Whitbreads the guy's a machine so hopefully with a little bit of um, input from him and a little bit of knowledge and a little bit of uh, encouragement I can have the boat absolutely ready before I go but it is both with trepidation and excitement and nervousness that I realize that I'm committing myself and I guess that's why I keep talking to you guys about it because if I do that, then I have to go, right? <laughs> it's all too easy not to commit to something and to end up in a situation. Actually, I've got something on the wall here, which I could kind of finish up with, which is like a, a thought for the day. I do look across here and see that it's just fallen off the wall. Hang on, let me grab it. 
All right. See, it's happening in real time. I'm a real person. I live in the real world. This was stuck up on the wall of the last workshop I had, and it's by, uh, now, I think we pronounce his name Goth or Goth. It's that G-O-E-T-H-E guy. So we'll call him Goth, shall we? I'm, I'm imagining now as like some kind of... Uh, medieval uh, emo black hair white makeup like black fingernails like he's goth man uh but he did say this which is uh which is why i stole it from the, <laughs> the last workshop and i brought it with me it says until one is committed there is hesitancy the chance to draw back always ineffectiveness concerning all acts of initiative and creation there is one elementary truth the ignorance of which kills countless ideas and splendid plans, that the moment one definitely commits oneself, a whole stream of events issues from the decision, raising in one's favor all manner of unforeseen incidents and meetings and material assistance which no man could have dreamed would have come his way. Whatever you can do or dream you can, begin it. Boldness has genius, power, and magic in it. Begin it now. Well, there you go. That's pretty, uh, pretty telling stuff. But now I'm not really of the the kind of people that believe that you know if you think of something, then the universe will manifest it for you and all that kind of stuff. I'm very aware of the Beta Mainhoff uh, principle. The if you're not aware of this, basically there is a principle whereby when something comes into your sphere of awareness, like you're thinking about buying a new car or you bought a new watch, suddenly you're going to see that car everywhere. You're going to see that watch everywhere. And that's because our brains are pattern recognizers. It's been a fantastic way of surviving for us. And so now we get a lot of like endorphins and, and dopamines and things released in our brain when we solve the problem of, oh, there's another one. Oh, there's another one and make a little pattern. So I'm not in any way getting into the mysticism of the fact that the universe is going to suddenly drop things in my lap. No, no, no. I go the other way. This is about the fact that if I focus on it, then my brain will do all of the hard lifting and help me to find opportunities and make things happen. So um, focusing and making a little place for myself where I'm going to be working entirely on this project by I have manifested a space where this happens means my brain is very much clued into it. And if it detects patterns which lead to opportunities which can help to push this thing forward, then so much the better, right? But my way of putting it is very, very boring. <laughs> and goth or goth or that guy's, his way of doing it is much, much better. So yes, I'm very glad that we uh, took that off the wall. So, well, I hope there's enough uh, randomness in all that for you. It has become completely obvious to me in the last couple of weeks that if you start to overthink something like a podcast or writing a blog or making a video or something like that, you just end up that you can't produce anything. You end up where it's taking you hours and hours and hours to do all this editing. And at the end of the day, you know, it's about being honest. Like I put in um and so and uh in things. And if I'm spending two hours editing them all out of the words I've said on the podcast, then ugh, you know, you don't want to make a podcast anymore. And if you have to do all these fancy editing things without a team to help you on YouTube, then you just don't do anything. But the key here is that we all keep talking and we keep uh, going out sailing and learning things and chatting and the community of people that are already around this now. I've got to say the podcast, I just got the numbers now, we had 3,000 downloads. So <laughs> I'm thinking it's just like four or five people who are just downloading it repeatedly and repeatedly. But 
I'm getting lots of emails from people. So that alone is worth doing all this. But you will forgive me if uh, there's not like some team of people behind me. There's not loads of other people at these desks. It's just me running around with different hats on. Oh, that's a good idea. I could get different hats to wear at the different... No. Okay. All right. Well, it was an idea. Anyway, wherever you are, I hope that you are safe and sound. We're living in crazy times, but just keep your head down. It's going to take a little while to get through, but keep making smart decisions and we'll come out the other side of it together. I'll speak to you in the next one. Cheers.